Welcome to PR After Hours, your weekly cocktail of news and interviews with leading thinkers in PR, marketing, and business. So pull up a chair in our virtual lounge. Your host, Alex Greenwood, will be right back after this. Employee engagement, the great resignation, and quiet quitting are amongst the biggest problems facing every business. No organization is immune, and almost every organization is suffering due to lack of talent. Well, in addition to guesting on over 25 podcasts, Rob Dubin, our guest today, is going to make it 26 or maybe more. Who knows by now? He's an award-winning filmmaker who traveled the world making TV programs and commercials for Fortune 500 companies. He's a serial entrepreneur. He created multiple seven-figure businesses. All right, everybody, hold on to your hats. At the age of 42, Rob and his wife retired. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, they retired, sold their home, and it just gets worse, folks. Just bear with me. Moved on to a 40-foot sailboat and spent the next 17 years sailing around the world studying human happiness and fulfillment. <laughs> well, today he's a motivational speaker and corporate trainer, and he's got some insights on the great resignation, quiet quitting, and I may even ask him a little bit about life on the boat. But uh, let me stop talking so we can welcome a great talker himself, Rob Dubin, welcome to the Virtual Lounge. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I'm excited to be here and hope we can offer some good value to your listeners. I'm sure you can, because uh, this whole uh, great resignation and quiet quitting, how, when you first started hearing about it, how did you process that? What did you think it was? Well, as you mentioned, I studied uh, for many, many years as we sailed around the world. And before that and after that, I studied human happiness. I've always been very uh, focused on making myself happy and helping other people to be happy. So I was always focused on that. And during the pandemic, I was still very happily retired. I live up in the mountains of Colorado. So my life didn't change very much because we could be outside and do all the things that I like to do. But I kept uh, hearing people during the pandemic that were so unhappy with their lives. And then when I heard the great resignation, that term, and I listened to these people doing interviews on television, on regular news programs, they didn't say I quit because I was unhappy with my job. They said I quit because I, I was unhappy with my life. And during COVID, I had a chance to be at home and examine my life, and I realized I wasn't living the life I wanted to live. So when I realized so many people were so unhappy, and when I knew that I had studied happiness and I had talked about it and taught it, and I knew how to teach people how to find more happiness in their lives, I just couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. So I was 68 years old, I started a new business speaking, and I, I didn't do it because I needed to, something to do or needed a business. I just knew there was a problem out there that I thought I could make a difference on. To all the employers out there listening, Rob, um, how much responsibility do they have to take for their employees' happiness, though? Well, we have experienced a lot of pain. I mean, the, the, the C-suite is for the first time ever maybe paying attention to the attrition and talent retention in a way they didn't before. You know, the 20 years ago, 15 years ago, even five years ago, the attitude was, you're lucky to have this job. 
And now every employer is aware of how much money they are spending to rehire people. It costs one to two times somebody's annual salary to rehire them. And in big companies, they have a domino effect where two or three people in one department quit. The people that are left or get overworked very quickly and burned out, and then they quit. And now the company has not only have to replace five or six people, but they've lost institutional knowledge that's maybe irreplaceable. And so the C-suite is finally paying attention to talent retention in a way that maybe they didn't before. And the solution is teaching people how to be happier because the, the money that they spend on compensation and benefits and working on the corporate culture and you know, finding the right benefit and all those things, all of those efforts that they do, the goal is to make people happier with their jobs. Yeah. But you can also make people better at being happy. And so when you make people better at being happy, you leverage all that money that you're already spending on compensation and benefits and employee recognition programs and all those other things. The goal is to make them happy. But what if they're just better at being happy? So you you leverage that money hugely that you're already spending, and then you find out that happy employees, for instance, close 37% more sales, they're more productive, they're more creative, they stay on the job longer, and then they become your best source of new recruitment. So the return on investment for teaching people how to be happier is gigantic. Uh, so I think that's a little bit the silver lining in the pandemic is that we have recalibrated the uh, the balance of power a little bit between employer and employee this is fascinating rob so is there and forgive me i know it's more than one thing but can you give me an example of how a business could could help people be happier and can you just give me an example of how that might be done yeah very definitely there's actually when you study the science of happiness it's called the science of positive psychology and there's two types of happiness. One of them is called hedonic happiness, and the other is called eudaimonic happiness. And hedonic happiness, of course, it come, is the same root word of hedonism, hedonism, and it's things that make you feel good in the moment. So, you know, it could be eating an ice cream cone, having a piece of chocolate, drinking good wine, buying a new car, having sex, meeting the right partner. All of those things make us happy, but they make us happy for a pretty short period of time. The other side of it is eudaimonic happiness, which has to do with things that create purpose and meaning in our lives. And so what I do when I go into a corporation is I focus on first, the easy target is improving the hedonic happiness. So companies are doing this with their benefits packages, you know, the if you work in a Silicon Valley company, it's the omelet station in the uh, the cafeteria. And for other companies, it's the massage chair or the membership to a gym or something, or money for a massage on a monthly basis. And so if we work on uh, things like a gratitude practice and something that's called savoring, where you help people be in the present moment and focus on the happiness that they're feeling. So if you teach that piece of the puzzle, you help people enjoy that hedonic happiness for a longer period of time. So if you think about, for instance, a new car, you bought a new car. Mm. Well, you know, your new car is wonderful and it makes you so happy, but a year from now, it's just your car. Right. 
I read one study that said when people got an, a raise, they were happy about their raise for an average of 16 days. So the company thinks they've done this amazing, magnanimous thing, giving you your annual raise, and a month from now, it's just your salary. So by helping people with the uh, things like a gratitude practice and being present, you can expand the time that they stay happy about those things. And then the big piece of the puzzle is teaching this eudaimonic happiness, things that create purpose and meaning in your life. So when I do a full day corporate workshop, uh, happiness employee happiness workshop for a corporation, the last part of that is what something I call dream harvesting, where you help people figure out their goals and dreams and they, they you ask them, don't censor yourself, make a list of every goal and dream you want to accomplish in your life. If you want to have a private jet in your own private island and be king of the world, write that down. And then I take them through a process using some neuro-linguistic programming tools to help make that dream achievable. And you start them on the path to achieving that dream. Well, when they're achieving their dreams, they're growing, they're adding meaning to their life and purpose to their life. And so now you're helping them achieve that eudaimonic happiness that is really deep, deep happiness that transcends the moment of the momentary hedonic happiness. And that infuses all of their life. And so if you are a happy person, the trials and tribulations of your life become much smaller. So I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I went on, I was speaking, I live in Colorado and I was speaking in Wichita, Kansas. And I'd had a great experience speaking to an HR group there. And I flew back to, to Denver and I was driving up to my little town in the mountains. And on the way, my uh, light on the dashboard saying my tire was getting low. I had got picked up a nail and it was getting a flat. And uh, so I, you know, figured that I knew there was a gas station about 15 miles away. And sure enough, I made it to the gas station and then pulling up to the air thing. I got in an accident with another truck. Ooh. So first I had a flat tire and then I got in a car accident, but I was so happy from this experience that I had just had, that those two events did not change my level of happiness, not even a millimeter, not a fraction. So here's these events of your life that on another day could have made you think, oh, this is a terrible day and I'm all angry. It didn't make me anything. It, I still was just as happy because I have this deep eudaimonic happiness and that builds so much resilience. So an HR department can't solve every problem for their employees. There are DEI issues, or you have a bad boss, or you know something. Your your job is overwhelming you. But if you've raised people's level of happiness, they can take those things so much more in stride than if they're already miserable and burned out. You know, I I hate to say this. I hate to drag this in here, but it's it's topical, Rob. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with this. Let's talk about Twitter for a second. So um, <laughs> talk about Elon Musk. He's come in, he's laid off most of the, not most, but close to most of the workforce. He's got rid of all these perks, all these things you kind of mentioned that made Twitter probably a nicer place to work before he got there. Um, 
you're going to run into CEOs like that constantly. Have you ever talked to a CEO who may have been talking about bringing you in who was very skeptical and was more of like, look here, I'm not here to be, you know, the cruise director. You know, I'm not on the love boat and I'm not Julie. I'm here to get ring as much profit out of my company as I can. Tell me about those kind of hard nosed people and how you interact. Well, you know, so I've built several million dollar businesses myself. So I've been in that spot. I didn't have a huge company, but I had a profitable smallish company. And I would say that CEOs do need to be data driven. Mm -hmm. They, you know, you have to look at the bottom line or you're not going to have a profitable business. But what's happened with the great resignation is the C-suite is feeling enough pain that they are now having to pay attention to these things. I mean, I saw a uh, at the start of 2022, Fortune magazine did a survey of I don't I think it was either the Fortune 200 or, or maybe it was all of the Fortune 500. But they asked these CEOs. Uh, all uh, the like 80% of the CEOs that they polled said, we think our profits are going to be down this year because we're struggling for talent. So finally, the CEOs have felt enough pain to start to pay attention to the HR problem. And HR has always just been considered a sunk cost. You know, all the love goes to the marketing department and the advertising department and the sales department. But now, HR people have a seat at the table that maybe they never had ever before. I mean, I've never seen it in the past 30 years where the C-suite was listening to the HR department the way they are today. Hmm. And as I said earlier, there is it is so prof happy employees are so profitable. An insurance company did some happiness training for a group of employees and insurance sales. You know, it's a numbers game hmm. and they found that the happy employees closed 37% more sales. You ask any sales manager what a 37% bump would look like. That's gigantic. Oh, man. Yeah. And they're more productive. They're more creative. So we have this idea that uh, when we are creative, we will be productive and then we will be achieve things and then we will be happy. Right. And in fact, that's backwards. If you're happy first, you generate chemicals in your brain and processes in your brain that make you more productive and more creative and therefore more successful. So, so and I, I, again, Twitter is a very extreme example and you've got a fairly uh, non-traditional CEO in, in Mr. Musk, but, but so do you think, and we can just make it a hypothetical company, but whatever, but I'm just curious, do you think, do you think though that that kind of scorched earth kind of, uh, management style is going out is it is it gonna is it or is this a fad because i keep reading here and there that well the great resignation is really over you know or you know tell me tell me what you think on that well first of all the great resignation is not over i haven't looked at the last month or two but for most of 2022 the resignation numbers were actually higher than 2021 during the pandemic we were at the end of 2021, we were at 2.98 million job losses per month, and it went up to 3.4 million during the all the first quarter and most of the first half of this of 2022. So the resignation has continued. And what's happened is we've gone through a paradigm shift. We are never going back to the era of 
50 hours a week working in a cubicle with your nose to the grindstone at a job that you hate. That's just gone. And I'll explain why we've had this paradigm shift. There's something uh, that the psychologists also uh, identify. It's a wonderful term called miswanting. So I took a, a happiness studies course at Yale University. It's about a 10 week course. And the entire first third of the course is about this idea of miswanting. And miswanting is this idea that we think when I win the lottery, when I get the new car, when I get the new job, when I get the new house, when I tick all these boxes, I'm going to be happy. And in fact, none of those things make us happy for very long. Even lottery winners, you know, people have a what they call a happiness set point. And they found out that people that won the lottery, uh, within two years, they were back to almost the same happiness set point. They, they, they get a little peak. And the same thing on the downside, people that became paraplegics, if I ask you, Alex, if you win the lottery, so let's say you're at a five right now on your happiness of one scale of one to 10. If you win the lottery, how happy do you think it's going to make you? And you're probably going to tell me a 10. And in fact, when you win the lottery, you find out it only moved you from five to six and a half. And on the negative side, it's the same thing. People that became paraplegics, if I ask you, how terrible would this be? You would say, I'm going to go from a five to a one. And in fact, people that end up in wheelchairs, they end up back at a five within a year or two. So we have this idea of miswanting. We want the new car and all those things, but they don't actually bring happiness. And that's what people discovered during the pandemic. There's this meme called COVID clarity. And those are the people that I was hearing on the news saying, during the pandemic, I had a chance to re-examine my life and I'm not living the life that I wanted. So here's the paradigm shift. I get, there's a long explanation to get back to the paradigm shift, but the paradigm shift is previously, we were content if our life was at a 6.5 on the happiness scale. And today people are saying 6.5 isn't cutting it for me. I wanna have much more happiness in my life. So that's the paradigm shift that we went through during the pandemic. And people are actively looking for more happiness. So for a guy like me who teaches happiness, right. I'm kind of thinking this is the silver lining in the pandemic. A whole lot more people are focused on wanting more happiness in their life. I think that's a good thing. And I think a year and two and three years from now, more people are going to be happier than they were five years ago. You know, I, I walked away from a very good job 13 years ago to start my own company simply because I just I just hated the grind. I didn't, and I just, I wanted to see if I could do it. And here I am 13 years later. Now, now right now, Rob, I've got to figure out payroll this month. I've got, I've got some things, but I'm not unhappy. And, and that's a great point you're making because I do look, I'm like, I've got some little business debt. I've got some things I'd like to pay off. I wish this client would hurry up. So sign the contract, you know, but that's just, I'm happier though than I think I've ever been in my entire life. And you just reminded me of that fact. Thank you, by the way, uh, because humans are like that. We, we're never satisfied, really. Um, and like you said, ice cream, lottery ticket. And of course, you, you read about all these lottery people who just blow the money anyway. And then they're right back where they were. I read about a guy who did that. He, was a, he worked at McDonald's. And he gave away a lot. He paid some bills. He bought his mom a house, whatever. And he's back to working at McDonald's. He doesn't have hardly any money left. And he says, I'm happier than I've ever been because I have a sense of purpose. I know what I'm doing. I like who I work with. So you're saying 
you work with people, let's instill that kind of of happiness. I I can't say the word. I know I know hedonic. I can't do the other word. Eudaimonic. Eudaimonic. Okay, I'll try to remember. You the man. You you the man. Okay, I'll try to remember that. But but I love what you're saying here because I I just try to put myself uh, as a guy. I don't employ a lot of people right now, but uh, I have contractors I work with, and one of the things I always try to do though is respect. You know, particularly because it's contractors, they can walk anytime they want. But I try to respect that this is how they like to work. Um, I've got one. She's a great writer and she writes at night. I get everything on time, but during the day, don't bother her. You know, those kinds of things seem to work. She's happy. I'm happy. She's getting ready to travel. She's going to head back to Colorado, by the way. She's going to she loves Colorado. We have a meeting Thursday with a client. She'll be on the Zoom on time. But after that, you know, she's she's free to come and go. How how much is that? though, being conflated by employers, because I think a lot of employers are like, I keep hearing, this is what I keep hearing at meetings and networking, This the, the, the upper level folks are a little dubious. They're like, oh, they all want to work from home forever. They all want to be baby. They want this, that, and the other. Are these just executives who haven't quite understood this paradigm shift and they're clinging to the old thing? Or what do you think? You know, it runs the gamut like so many things. I mean, a lot of the the babies thing we hear talked about the millennials, you know, that yeah. they've got to be cosseted and uh, Simon Sinek, who is, you know, the most watched TED talk, I think, or one of the most watched of all time. He talks about that and he just says, well, you know, we're not dealing with them in the way that they're used to be dealing. And it's both sides. You know, if I want to communicate with you, it, it, I can't just say what I need to say. I need to understand how you process the information. And, you know, if you speak French and I speak Italian, somewhere I have to meet you in the middle that we, so we can communicate. And so part of it, the C-suite or the employer problem is that if you have a whole bunch of millennial or Gen Z employees and they think a certain way and you want to communicate to them, you're going to have to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Um, but there are some changes. I mean, when the pandemic first started, if you would have asked every C-suite or HR or any leader, how is this going to work working from home? Everybody predicted productivity is going to fall off by 30 or 40 or 50 percent. And right. in fact, we all found out that not to be the case. Productivity went up for some companies and everybody's happier there. You know, they're working at home in their pajamas and they don't have a two hour commute a day. So that worked out really well. And we all learned from it. I would say both sides. Hmm. And the, the message I'm hearing from the HR people that I work with, I speak at a lot of HR conferences. The method message I'm hearing from them is that if you don't allow remote work for your knowledge workers who can do their jobs from home, you're limiting the, the talent pool talent that you pool. have access to. For a lot of people, that's not a that's a non-negotiable now. So there's a whole lot of the employer employee uh, talent pool that won't will not apply for a job that doesn't allow them to work from home at least some of the time or much of the time. Yeah. Obviously, if you have a manufacturing plant or something like that, you, you know that doesn't fly. But uh, for knowledge workers, that's just a given. And I think that the other things that are happening, uh, I w I was interviewed for Authority Magazine a little while ago as kind of a thought leader on this topic. And one of the things I said is, I think that we're gonna see not only a lot more remote work and hybrid work, but we're gonna see a lot more employers being flexible with the job description so that 
maybe the job that you left 13 years ago, maybe your employer could have twisted the job so you did more of the parts of it that you liked and less of the parts of it that you don't like. Or you could have done a job sharing with somebody else. So employers are getting quite a bit more flexible in how they do solve those problems. So if you have a great employee, but he hates to do the paperwork side of this or whatever, maybe there's a way to keep him and give that to somebody else. That's fantastic. I think that's I think that's true. And you're you're making you're think I'm thinking back to one of my last management jobs before I started my own. And I did have a younger employee who just she kind of picked the parts of the job she wanted to do and only did those, which really wasn't good. Um, we had to kind of coach through that. It ultimately didn't work out, unfortunately. But I get I get what you're saying though. If there if there there had been a way to try to say, okay. Susie's great at this part and, uh, you know, Jim is great at this part. Let's kind of hybridize both their roles. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. And I think we're going to start seeing a little more. We're going to see a lot of things where the employers are realizing if they want to keep the talent they have, they need to be more flexible than they were five years ago. Yeah. You can't just you can't just hold a salary over people's heads anymore is what I'm hearing a lot here. Yeah. And that's what employers are finding out. And the C-suite is finding out. And for the people in the HR world, this is a gigantic once in a generation opportunity because HR now has a chance to have a seat at the big table that they yeah. maybe never had before. And I think that um, talent management is going to be part of strategic business planning for corporations. It, it obviously has to be. Rob, how do uh, how do people, if they want to learn more, and I think there's going to be some HR folks in particular listening who are going to want to get in touch with you. How do they learn more about you and what you have to offer? Uh, well, they can go to my website. It's my name, Rob Dubin, R-O-B-D-U-B-I-N.com. And if they go to the resources page of my website, there's a, a little form they can fill out with an, uh, their email, and they will get an email back offering about half a dozen different uh, PDFs that they can download with these some of these ideas, uh, the framework that I teach for happiness, a little, the, the, um, the multi-thousand dollar one-day workshop that I do for corporations, they can download a uh, condensed version of that. And there's a bunch of other things in there. There's some financial things of how we were able to retire and go sailing for, 14, for 17 years. I'm happily married to my best friend for 40 years. And wow. when we tell people that we lived on a sailboat together 24 seven for 17 years, a lot of people ask how that happened. And so there's uh, some relationship things in there as well. So anyway, there's a number of PDFs that people can download and uh, help them through some of these questions. I, I'm fascinated by this. The, and I, I didn't find that yet. I'm going to go look for that part on your, I'm fascinated by people who do what you did. It's just so gutsy and, and, it really puts your relationship to the test. My wife and I were thinking about retiring. And I said, we ought to get one of those tiny houses. She's like, no, no, too close quarters. So I don't think the boat thing will work either. But hey, I, I got to ask, Rob, okay, what do you, come on, you, you stopped doing it. You live in the mountains now. What do you miss about being on that boat? Well, I do. I miss the camaraderie of the sailing community, which was so, so wonderful. And it's interesting because it's full circle here. One of the key predictors of happiness or some, a key thing in people that are very happy what I studied and what I, uh, what I saw when I was sailing and then I read about it in this scientific literature as well, that close relationships are a key predictor of happiness. And 
the sailing community, because you are so interdependent, when you're out there, you know, you can't pick up the phone and call the repair shop or use your credit card to bail you out of whatever difficulty you get in. Your only help is other sailors. And so you build super tight uh, personal relationships. And that's the part of the sailing commu- thing I miss is the sailing community. Uh, oh, man. Rob Dubin, you've, you've, you've led quite a life. And what I love about you is you're giving back. You're, you really are. People say that, but it's evident you really are. You certainly don't have to do what you're doing. You could be just, uh, well, you're in the mountains. Uh, you could just be taking hikes and sitting on the porch and, you know, that kind of thing. But you're out speaking. You're just down the road in Wichita, as you said. I'm in Kansas City. So, uh, you know, uh, come up to KC sometime. I'll take you to some good barbecue if you eat meat. But if you don't, I'll, I'll find something else for you. Uh, Again, we we have the website. It's a fantastic site, Rob Dubin. It's real simple, robdubin.com. But don't worry, folks. It's going to be in your show notes. And for some reason, it's not in your show notes. Everything, including a picture picture of our guest and more, will be on prafterhours.com. Rob Dubin, I've learned a lot. I have a lot more questions. And maybe sometime we'll get you back and I can fire away again. Thanks so much for joining us here in the virtual lounge. Thanks for having me, Alex. And I'd love to come back anytime. You know what that means. It's last call here at the Virtual Lounge. Be sure to visit PRAfterHours.com for links to what we discussed in this episode and more. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another round at PR After Hours with Alex Greenwood.